All right, so some of you may be familiar with the name David French. He's a conservative columnist and editor, and he recently wrote, 2020 started off like 1974, an impeachment crisis, quickly became 1918, a pandemic, turned into 1929, an economic crash, and is now 1968, massive urban unrest. So quite a bit for six months. So with all of that, there's increased isolation, increased separation, increased stress and uncertainty, increased loss of a number of kinds and a number of ways, losing family, losing jobs. We're out of routines. We're unable to see friends and family as we'd like. There's more anger, frustration, irritability. It seems like, you know, people can just, we can just snap. Irritability, sadness, depression, anxiety. It's easy to flounder and it's harder to flourish, maybe. Maybe that's been your experience the last few months. And some of you might feel like you're drifting, even getting cold spiritually or perhaps even hardened spiritually. So we're going to do a brief series here for four weeks called The Perseverance of the Savior and His Saints. So we're going to talk about perseverance. We need assurance and encouragement. We need endurance. How do we endure, especially when things are difficult? We need grace for that endurance. So in systematic theology, there's a phrase called the perseverance of the saints, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. How many are familiar with that phrase? Okay, some of you, most of you. So here's how we summarize that doctrine in our statement of faith, which you can find on our website if you want to refresh your memory or if you haven't seen it. So here goes, those whom God has chosen in Christ and has effectually called and justified, language straight from Romans 8, can neither totally nor finally fall away. They will certainly persevere to the end and be saved. He who began a good work in his own will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's language from Philippians 1.6. We're going to consider that text next Sunday, Lord willing. Next paragraph. God's very faithfulness is at stake in the fulfilling of all his new covenant promises on behalf of his chosen people. His covenantal keeping grace is worked in them, not so as to diminish their vigilance. We don't sit on our hands as a result of the fact that God is keeping us. But his grace is worked in us to empower and encourage our vigilance. In the end, they, we, God's people, can say, I have fought the good fight. That's Paul's language in 2 Timothy 4. Though, Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 15, though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. So perseverance of the saints, but also the perseverance of the Savior. Okay, so we think about, maybe you're familiar with perseverance of the saints, but underneath the perseverance of the saints is the perseverance of the Savior. Our perseverance is predicated on, it's ensured by the perseverance of our loving Savior. That's what we're going to actually focus on this morning from John 6. So 
Do you ever fear that your faith may fail? You resonate with that line in that song we just sung? Do you ever fear that you're going to give up or you're going to give in? Aren't you glad that Christ will hold me fast? In fact, I'd encourage you to take that song with you (laughs) into this week and maybe listen to it on repeat. So just Google, He Will Hold Me Fast, and Shane and Shane is one um, couple of guys, really beautiful rendition, rendition, powerful rendition, or Norton Hall Band is another one, He Will Hold Me Fast, and just turn the volume up to 11. Some of you might get that. Um, Especially when you're struggling, such an encouraging song and definitely a good soundtrack for our lives. So we have need of endurance and we can have confidence that we will persevere. Not because you and I have this iron will, not because of our innate toughness, but because the Lord Jesus has a sovereignly iron will. And his love and grace are more stubborn than our sin and our proneness to wander. You can say amen to that even behind your mask if you want. Um, So you and me, we need Jesus. We need to know the perseverance of our Savior. So let's look at John 6, verses 35 to 40, and maybe a few other texts this morning. Like I said, next week we'll look at Philippians 1 in the context of the book of Philippians, and then weeks 3 and 4, Hebrews and 1 John. Okay? And then after that, the plan is to do a series on the minor prophets. Okay? So, John 6, 35 to 40. Uh, if you're not there already, I would encourage you to turn there and follow along. So, Jesus said, first point, Jesus alone can satisfy. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus said to the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, if you are on keto or Atkins, does anybody do Atkins anymore, or maybe you're gluten-free, don't lose the weight and the force of this. You might not even like bread or eat much of it, okay? But for folks in the first century in the Middle East, bread was an absolute staple of life. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. If you don't have daily bread, you are going to starve. So Jesus is declaring that he alone can satisfy the hunger and thirst of our souls. Okay, so we were made by God. We're made for God. So as Augustine famously said, we were made for you and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So Jesus himself is the food that our souls so desperately need. So everybody's looking for something, something to fill in the holes. 80s rock song, okay? (laughs) Anyway, um, maybe the same people that got the this one goes to 11. Um, So everybody's hungry. We're all hungry. We're all thirsty. We're seeking to fill that inner ache and hunger and longing. And some try to fill it with food or sex 
or relationships or money or success or comfort or a hobby or clothes or sport or thrill-seeking or fame, but nothing is big enough to satisfy our souls. Nothing is substantial enough. Nothing lasts long enough to truly satisfy the soul. So this is a well-known little video clip in our home. Uh, I think we actually showed it to somebody a couple days ago um, that was with us. So at the 2016 Golden Globe Awards, comedian and actor Jim Carrey was introduced by the, you know, voiceover narrator person as the two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey as he came out to announce the nominees and the winner for the best motion picture comedy. Here's what he said. And this is a comedian, you know, so he's hilarious and people laugh usually when he comes on the stage. So he said, I am, he's got this big smile on his face, I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. He's still smiling. People in the audience are laughing. It would finally be true. I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. People are still laughing in the audience. But these are important, these awards. I don't want you to think that just because if you blew up our solar system alone, you wouldn't be able to find us or any of human history with the naked eye. But from our perspective, this is huge. You can try to satisfy that hunger, that thirst with physical food, comfort food. You can try to satiate it with retail therapy. You can try to fill the hole with entertainment. Nothing, no mere human will ever satisfy your soul's hunger and thirst. Jesus alone can satisfy your soul. He, he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never hunger. Whoever believes in him will never thirst. In fact, in Greek, there's a double negative for both phrases there. It's, you know, in English, that's bad English. But in Greek, it's a way to express emphasis. So literally it reads, whoever comes to me will never ever hunger. Whoever believes in him will never ever thirst. So what, what does that mean? Stop for a second. Like maybe you're familiar with that verse. What does that mean? Does that mean that if I have really believed in Jesus, or wait a second, you know, have I really believed in Jesus if I'm tempted to run to food or alcohol or porn or a relationship or a different job or deeper friendships to satisfy the longing in my soul? If I'm tempted to look elsewhere, that means I'm hungering and thirsting, right? So, and Jesus said, if we come to him, we'll never ever hunger or thirst. So what does this mean? 
Am I not the real thing? Well, what this means is something very much akin to Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Does that mean that we won't ever get tempted and even fall and wander into coveting things that are not ours or that God has said no to, at least temporarily, maybe for all of our earthly life? No, but it means that if the Lord is our shepherd, we really can and will have everything that we need, and we can be satisfied in Him. It means that you finally come to the right place. The core restlessness and hunger and emptiness is finally filled. You know where true and abundant life is found. You're no longer in the dark on that, on where true soul satisfaction is to be found. So, of course, when we wander from Jesus, we hunger. If we drift, if we walk wandering away from Jesus, we're walking away from soul satisfaction and refreshment and flourishing. We are walking towards soul famine. We're starving ourselves, what we really need. But if you are following Jesus, not perfectly, but genuinely, if you are with Him, if Jesus has you, then you never have to fend for yourself again. You're not going to have to go cobble some satisfaction together. You'll never be hopeless and lost again, ultimately, because you have Him. So if He is your shepherd, your bread, you will not want. In fact, you will be satisfied. So Charles Spurgeon, well-known beloved pastor in London in the 1800s, said it this way in that well-known book, Morning and Evening, a devotional book. The person who believes in Jesus finds enough in his Lord to satisfy him now and to content him forevermore. The believer finds in Jesus such a spring of joy, such a fountain of consolation that he is content and happy. Put him in a dungeon and he will find good company. Place him in a barren wilderness and he will eat the bread of heaven. Drive him away from friendship and he will meet the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Destroy all his shade, and he will find shadow beneath the rock of ages. Erode the foundation of his earthly hopes, but his heart will still be fixed, trusting in the Lord. The heart is as insatiable as the grave until Jesus enters it, and then it becomes a cup full to overflowing. There is such a fullness in Christ that he alone is the believer's sufficiency. An old saint once declared, I've been lowering my bucket into the well so often, but now my thirst for Jesus has become so insatiable that I long to put the well itself to my lips and drink right out of it. Come continually to the fountain and take the water of life freely. Jesus will never think you take too much but will always welcome you saying, drink, yes, drink abundantly, loved one. So we know where the soul food is. So come and get it, brothers and sisters. Day after day after day, come to Jesus for a feast for your souls and for satisfaction. The passage that Sabrina read is the Old Testament version of this. Come, everyone who thirsts, 
Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. This isn't for a privileged few. This is for everybody. Whoever will come can have Jesus. Why do you spend your money on that which that for which is not for, for, for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy, which we do all the time, right? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. So what do we need that is not found in and through Jesus? So let's come to him and trust in him and find our souls satisfied. Now, when you do come, there is a warning that we've got to note in this chapter. Okay, so I put it in the form of a question in point number two on the outline. Can you come to Jesus without coming to Jesus? What do I mean? Well, look at verse 36. The answer is yes. Jesus said to the crowd, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So the earlier context here is important. So look back in chapter 6. Again, I told you, mentioned that the beginning of chapter 6, you have the feeding in the 5,000, right? So after that, the disciples go across the lake. Jesus goes over there. And the crowds follow him, and they come seeking him. Verse 24, you see that? So they're coming to him, right? But look at why they're coming. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs. You're kind of blind to the significance of the signs. They're pointing to who I am. But you're actually seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father, has set his seal. So after the feeding of the 5,000, the people are just all excited. They, they're like, this is the prophet, you know, that Moses predicted. And they're trying to come to him to make him king by force. And they had a different idea of what the Messianic king was coming to do. They thought he was supposed to come in to free them from Roman oppression, and he came to free them from the dominion of sin. So he withdrew from them. And they come seeking him, but they're not coming to him for the right reasons. So they mention... They want him to perform another sign. Verse 30, they mention Moses and the manna, you know, the first instance of bread from heaven. And Jesus says in verse 33 that the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they, okay, give us that bread always from now on. And again, they're thinking physical provision and it would need to be given regularly just like the manna came daily. So D.A. Carson captures the thought here well. He says, they have seen only bread and power, not what they signify. This crowd has witnessed the divine revealer at work, but only their curiosity, appetites, and political ambitions have been aroused, not their faith. So they came to Jesus, they sought him, but they came to him to use him like a tool. 
He was a means in their mind to their desired ends. He was not their soul's end, you know, who and what they were made for, what they needed. He was a way to get what they really wanted, political freedom and food in their bellies. So they were using first things as a means to get what they really wanted, second things. And that never works. It's called idolatry. So C.S. Lewis said it well. Maybe you've heard this quote before. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. Dog keeping is a good thing. But if you make it a God thing, a central thing, like sun in the solar system of your life, you lose it. It is a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman. Glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. That kind of helps keep the lie, the deception alive. If only I had more time. Then, But clear the decks and so arrange your life that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her and what happens. Of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves the loss of a small or partial good for that which, uh, for which the sacrifice was made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. From which it would follow that the question what things are first is of concern not only to philosophers, but to everyone. So Jesus is not a tool to use to get what we really want. Jesus is our soul's treasure. He's a treasure, not a tool. So can you come to Jesus without coming to Jesus? Can you come to Jesus like the Jews did to get your bellies filled without coming to Jesus in order to be satisfied in him? Yes. So let's be honest with ourselves. Let's pray along with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and test my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I, I want to want you for you, not use you like a tool as if something else is my God. So even though there's this warning here, as we go on, Make sure you see that Jesus is gracious and merciful to people who came to him like mercenaries, <laughs> who came to him like gold diggers. You know what a gold digger is? It's a person who engages in a type of relational, like a transactional relationship for money rather than love. Ooh, but that's how we relate to God sometimes. We want his gifts. We don't want the giver. We don't want him. But he's gracious even to people like that because we've all been like that. So let's look now at this mighty, loving, gracious, persevering heart of our Savior in verses 37 to 39. Look first at verse 37, and we'll see the perseverance of the Savior. So all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So this section, this chapter is one to meditate on like for the rest of your life. I mean, this is a deep well. We're only going to be able to note a few things in our time this morning. But first, let's note that the Father gives 
people to the Son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Son doesn't have to twist the Father's arm. I mean, do you ever have the sense as you read the Old Testament or you hear other people, maybe this thought's cropped up in your own mind, like, boy, it seems like God, the Father, the Old Testament is kind of angry and wrathful and Jesus is kind and loving and Jesus came to pacify God's wrath so that he could change and become loving toward us. No. (laughs) That's not what the Bible says. God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only son. Of course he's justly angry with sin. But it was his own love, his own mercy that pacified his wrath by sending his son to absorb our punishment on the cross in our place. Jesus didn't have to twist his father's arm. So all the father gives to the son will come to Jesus. Do you see that? Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Back to 35, I'm the bread of life whoever comes to me. Christianity is about coming to a person. It's not ultimately or even primarily coming to a faith or a church or a set of propositional truths, as important as all those are. And it's certainly not coming to a magic get-out-of-hell-free prayer or a spiritual genie in a bottle. So our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in a person. You don't come to a doctrinal formula for salvation, as important and precious as doctrine is. You don't even come only to a book like this book as absolutely precious and wonderful God's word is this absolutely precious and wonderful book when you read it rightly it leads you to a person so all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me those given by the father I will never cast out again the double negative in Greek Never ever cast out. So the emphasis there is not on the fact that he won't refuse them, although that's true. He's not going to say, nope, Father, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. The emphasis is on all that the Father comes, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never kick them out. I'll never evict them. That's the emphasis. I will keep them. I will preserve them. I'll never kick them to the curb. So Jesus is saying to you and me, fellow Christian, I will keep you. You are safe in me, with me. I'm your refuge. I'm your home. I will never forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will never evict you. Isn't that good news? Do you need to hear that sometimes? Like, how do we know this is true, though? Look, look at how Jesus reasons. I will never, no, never cast you out. Why? Is it, well, it's because I've got a really long fuse. No, although that's true. 
Lord, Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, okay? But if it was just that reasoning, we might think, long fuse, but I don't know. It might burn out on me. <laughs> Look at the reasoning. Look at verse 38. Here's why. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up, all of them that the Father gave me. I will not lose any, and I will raise them up on the last day. If you are in Christ, your soul's future is as secure as Jesus' commitment to the Father's will. Did you hear that? If you are in Christ, your soul's future, like you're going to make it, is as secure as Jesus' commitment to doing the Father's will. How sure is that? Is there anything more ironclad in the universe than that? Like, if you think that Jesus might get sick and tired of you and just eventually just kick you to the curb, you are calling the perseverance of his will and his love into question. So imagine, imagine if a genuine Christian, one that the Father has given to the Son, if, if that Christian could be lost, what would it mean? from John 6, it would mean the failure of the Son. It would mean he did not do his Father's will. That he failed. That he, dare we say it, disobeyed the Father. That he dropped the ball. That he was either unwilling or unable to keep that one to the end. No. There's no way. So our grip, our grip may be weak. But his is omnipotent. Our security is based on the strength of his grip, not ours. John 10, just a few chapters later, 27 to 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, same language, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Who is going to pry open the fingers of omnipotence and snatch you away? What is strong enough in this world to do that? Nothing. It's like Romans 8, 31 to 39. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. So listen, Jesus' confidence that his own will make it to the end and be resurrected to eternal life on the last day is not confidence in our will or good intentions. It's confidence in his Father's gift and their sovereign intention. So I'm going to read a little bit more from this book in a minute, but I just want to give you one quote here. Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, and I would highly recommend this book to you, but hopefully the quote will whet your appetite enough to go get it. 
He says, we are talking about something deeper than the doctrine of eternal security or once saved, always saves. A, a glorious doctrine, a true doctrine, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. We have come more deeply to the doctrine of the perseverance of the heart of Christ. So I, let me just maybe insert this here just for what it's worth. I hope that nobody's getting hung up in their head right now, you know, with like Calvinism, Arminian debates in your head because you're going to kind of miss the grace, the sweetness of this passage if you do. Those, those debates are important. Those things are good to wrestle with. But this isn't about Calvinism. It's about believing the Bible and the precious truth that is here. So in the chapter that I'll be quoting from, Ortland is referring to John Bunyan's not well-known little book, um, called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ, where basically John Bunyan, you know, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, meditates on John 6, 37, and just writes a whole book about it. <laughs> just like savoring it and looking at it from every angle, okay? And there's a little preface to this book by a guy named George Ofor. Ofor, I don't know how to say his name. And here's what he said. Here is no Calvinism, Lutheranism, or Arminianism, no Episcopacy, Presbytery, or Independency, nothing but Christism and Bibleism. The gracious invitation is addressed to all who feel their misery. Come unto me, and I will make you happy and blessed. All who feel the leprosy of sin are invited to this spiritual physician, and he only can and will heal them. All who suffer under the slavery of sin and Satan, Christ alone can make you free. So again, that was the intro to John Bunyan's little book. He spends the whole book on John 6.37, and I found it and I started reading it. Um, he spends the majority of his time on that phrase, he, he that comes to me I will never cast out or the old King James, I will in no wise ca cast out, okay? So Ortland writes this, and then I'm going to read an extended quote here, and I think you'll see why. So Ortland writes, at the center of his book, Bunyan confronts our, listen to this, innate suspicions of Christ's deepest heart. And then he quotes Bunyan, the wisdom of heaven would not have had to invent such a promise to dash in pieces at one blow all the objections of coming sinners if they were not prone to admit of such objections to the discouraging of their own souls. You ever do that? Are you suspicious of Christ's heart toward you? <laughs> and you raise objections? Well, if we didn't do that, we wouldn't have needed this promise, but we do do that, so we needed this promise. So, here we go. This word, in no wise, cuts the throat of all objections. I know it's a little violent, but, you know, we should make war with unbelief, so here we go. And it was dropped by the Lord Jesus for that very end and to help the faith that is mixed with unbelief. And it is, as it were, the sum of all promises. Neither can any objection be made upon the unworthiness that you find in yourself that this promise will not remove. But I am a great sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast you out, says Jesus. But I'm an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. 
I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I've sinned against mercy. I will in no wise cast out. But I have no good thing to bring with me. I will in no wise cast out. We say, but I, he says, I will never cast out. Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons for Jesus to cast them out. We are factories of fresh resistances to Christ's love. (laughs) Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense that given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. I won't have you raise your hand, but anybody? I mean, come on. No, wait, we say cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that's hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out out. With mouth-stopping defiance, Bunyan concludes his list of objections we raise to coming to Jesus. This promise was provided to answer all objections and does answer them. Case closed. We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. He closes the chapter out by saying this. For those united to Jesus... His heart is not a rental. It is your new permanent residence. You are not a tenant. You are a child. His heart is not a ticking time bomb. His heart is the green pastures and still waters of endless reassurances of his presence and comfort, whatever our present spiritual accomplishments. It is who he is. Jesus is good with high-maintenance Christians. He's not surprised by your sin or your failures. He is not looking for a way out. He knew exactly what he was getting into when he saved you and made you his own. He will never, not ever, cast you out.
when I fear my faith will fail, am I going to make it? He will hold me fast. He will never disown you, get sick and tired of you, give up on you, forsake you, abandon you, on second thought you. So, brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, be encouraged. Hebrews 12, lift therefore your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed so that we can run the race that is set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus and we can run with endurance. So our eternal security does not rest in the strength of our will. Hallelujah but the strength of Jesus' will. Now again, that does not mean that we should rename the perseverance of the saints the cakewalk of the saints or the lazy river ride of the saints. We must believe. Look at the next verse, verse 40. Behold and believe. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. So you have that I will raise him up promise in verse 39 and in verse 40. In verse 39, the one raised up at the last day is the one the Father gave and the Son kept. The one raised up at the last day in verse 40 is the one who looks to the Son and believes. Those are two sides of the same coin. His perseverance underneath enabling our perseverance in faith. So the language of looking to the Son echoes, can you think of it? John 3, counter with Nicodemus. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that people would look and be healed of those serpent bites, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross and whoever looks to him and believes in him may have eternal life. So his work was to die, and his work is to keep us. He did, he does the heavy lifting. Our work is to believe, to come to him, to trust in him. So let's, tr let's trust in him. <laughs> let's keep coming to him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. You will find satisfaction for your souls. And finally, point number five, new creation in you means you in the new creation. Okay? It's kind of brief here. But look at the language of the last day and the promises to endure all the way to the end in verses 37 to 40. We'll just kind of scan down through it quickly. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, all those who come to me because the Father gave them to me, I will never cast out. I'll keep them till the end. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, not that I... I'm sorry, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing, not one of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. When you look on the Son and believe in him, you are new. You're a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
trusting in him for salvation. He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And each and every one of those new little new creations will be a part of the new creation, capital N, capital C, that is coming. Revelation 21.5, he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. The day is soon approaching. There's going to be no more curse, no more sickness, no more pandemic, no more loneliness, no more joblessness or anxiety or fear or sadness or injustice or death. So coming to Jesus now, feeding on him, is a foretaste of the feast of the final day. If you come to and trust in Jesus now, today, in this life, you will be seated at the table at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we will forevermore never hunger or thirst again. Listen to the vision in Revelation 7 of the saints who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. So foretaste now of satisfaction in Christ forever. Fullness of joy forever in his presence with him in the new creation. So sister in Christ, brother in Christ, you're going to make it. (laughs) The Lord Jesus will see to it. This here, John 6, (laughs) is professional grade assurance and confidence for anxious Christians. He will hold us fast. He will keep you till the end. Let's pray prepare our hearts to participate in the Lord's table where we will feed on the broken body given for us so that all these promises could be ours. The shed blood so that we could know this security and this peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave your son for us. You so loved the world that you gave your son and then you gave to your son a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And all who come to him for salvation, for soul level satisfaction, will never, ever have to look elsewhere. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for these promises. Help us to believe them. Drive away the suspicions we have in our hearts toward your heart. And I pray that even as we participate in your table, as we feast at the table that you have set by your broken body and shed blood, Lord Jesus. May this be a tangible, edible reminder of how we both need to come to Jesus and feed and slake our spiritual thirst and be nourished 
and also encouragement and soul-strengthening grace because you do feed us, because we are satisfied in you as the bread of life and the living water. And I pray that as we head out into this week, help us to keep coming to you and feeding on Christ. Secure in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.